Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hey team, welcome along to episode 149A of the Howie Games Part A, featuring record-breaking jockey Jamie Carr. Deep speed, 50 metres to go in front. They're coming at deep speed. Is it going to hold on? It will for Jamie Carr. A century, a century of winners from the car of the year has just been... Okay, a bit of an explanation for you before we go too much further. As things change pretty quickly after we recorded this actual episode. So to explain further, the main body of what you're about to hear was actually recorded in late July 2021 and we were aiming to release it around the Spring Carnival where I was hoping Jamie would win the Melbourne Cup. She's a great person, is Jay Carr, and chatting with her made a real impression on me. She is a hard-working, humble, friendly style of person. But, here's the but, in the midst of Victoria's seemingly endless lockdown last year, where we were all going spare and doing it pretty tough, Jamie was involved in a COVID-19 breach. In a major setback for the Spring Carnival, the face of racing, Jamie Carr, has been stood down for three months amid a serious COVID breach. The record-breaking hoop, along with three other jockeys, was caught partying at an Airbnb in Mornington. Apologising on social media, Carr said, I am deeply embarrassed and disappointed with myself. I deserve the penalty handed down by stewards and will take the time to reflect on my actions and its impact on so many people. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Now I don't know, I guess nobody knows at this stage how history will look back on the devastation of COVID and the way it was handled by various governments around the world. But what I do know is as a Victorian, being locked down longer than any other place in the world It was a bloody tough time, as it was for people all around Australia, all around the world. It was a tough time for everybody. Right or wrong decision, take your pick. It's a volatile topic. We don't need to go into it. And it was obviously a really, really volatile time because if you were caught breaking the rules, as many were, people were, well, pardon the language, they were pissed off. They were royally pissed off at you because, let's be honest, we were pissed off at everything. We were annoyed at homeschooling. We hated the press conferences that sucked everything from us. It destroyed us not seeing family and friends who weren't able to play sport. Basically, we were not able to live our lives. And into this really angry, upset, bewildered environment, into that environment wandered Jamie Carr, a young lady who made a big mistake, as she freely admitted, by having a party for one night. But because we were all so upset and the racing industry was worried the party could jeopardise their continued running, that party had Jamie on the front page of the newspaper and she and her fellow jockeys were smashed. And I mean smashed. It was a pylon that we in this country have unfortunately become really, really good at handing out. So that's what happened. A bit of background for you. And talking to Jamie and her manager, the good man that is James Henderson, the three of us agreed we couldn't really put out the full original episode without addressing the party and the effect it had on Jamie. So we recently recorded that part, which you're about to hear now. It's the first time Jamie has really spoken about the situation. As I said, that's what you're going to hear first. But then, 
After we've got through that, you will hear the story of an athlete who is incredibly driven to succeed, who has broken down barriers, who has fought tooth and nail, tooth and nail for everything she's achieved, who is a role model for many, and importantly, a role model especially for young girls. All this in one of the most dangerous sports that requires a discipline that is hard to comprehend. We all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Every single one of us. I guess my point here in this rather long-winded intro, it must be said, is that I hope you all celebrate Jamie Carr for her successes rather than belting her for one mistake in a really, really difficult time. Alrighty, let's hear from Jamie. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Well Jamie Carr, it was a while back since we spoke I've set up in the intro exactly what happened and the reason we're having another chat now before your full episode I know you haven't really spoken about this before I know it must be a difficult thing to go through and live through again because I can only appreciate how difficult a time it was for you. Before we get into the nuts and bolts, how are you feeling about having a chat about it all? And it's nice to see your smiling face again too. <laughs> yeah, no, look, it's been something I've been wanting to do for a while, um, but we just decided to get back to work and be- get back to racing before we really spoke about it. Um, but I'm definitely in a, a much better place now that I've, you know, um, got a bit of success and and being back doing what I love, um, and I'm probably ready to talk about it now. Well, I'm glad you're ready to talk about it. I guess the only way to go back, Jamie, is to go back to the time. When it all occurred, you immediately admitted you had made a mistake. Did you have any understanding of the size of the situation that was about to happen around you? Uh, Look, no, I I didn't at all. Um, Obviously, the first thing we did was speak to the stewards. and sort of the vibes I was getting off of them is, look, yeah, we made a massive mistake. We messed up big time. And obviously it was coming into spring carnival time and I knew they'd be that there'd be a punishment for it, which I completely understood and appreciated. Um, they had to just do their job. But when the result came back, um, oh, the emotions were just sad, angry, upset. I just, I really couldn't believe that we had gotten that long. Um, I obviously admitted to what I did was a mistake and uh, accepted it and, and copped the penalty, but it was just, um, in the end, I just, I really just shut down from everyone and everything around me because, you know, being a jockey, I, I love it. I, I don't really do it. We don't do it for the money. We, we do it because we love the horses. And coming into that time of year, um, I've already had rides around me that we'd accepted and, I just sort of saw everything just disappear and, um, yeah, it was a pretty dark time, to be honest. So you had to sit down there for a range of interviews, including the police. You're a, you're a young lady who's never put a foot wrong in her life. I've never been interviewed by the police. I can, Im- I can only imagine it must be a bloody daunting, stressful situation. Oh, it, it felt like you're a little kid getting told off by the principal. I honestly just went to water. I was... Uh, I've never been in trouble before. I'm not good with confrontation and um, I just couldn't get a word out. I was uh, for that 
few days of interviews and interrogations, I was just, I was a mess. I was just this little girl that just couldn't believe that everything's just sort of slipped away. Um, and look, the, the more we got through it, it got better. But the first week or so we had to do isolation, which was probably the worst week of my life. Um, I couldn't see anyone, couldn't be around anyone. And obviously the, the media and people on Facebook and, and Twitter and I just had to shut down my phone because, you know, the things that was getting said about me, about us, um, I, I'm one that I've always wanted to be, um, you know, positive and a good person and a good role model in people's eyes and that everything I've built for the last 10 years of being a jockey just I felt like in in an hour it just just disappeared. How was that? isolation, obviously when any of us go through a tough period in life, we want to be surrounded by those that we love and we trust and you're at home by yourself, I presumably, at that stage. Yeah. Um, no, that was just awful. It was probably the, the time I needed um, people around me and um, I had no one. I was, I was locked in a, um, in a room by myself just, yeah, listening to what the media said about me and, um, yeah, to be honest, like I said, that was probably the one of the darkest times of my life. I'm sorry to hear that. There's two components to what you're saying. The first, as a jockey, the spring carnival, that's what it is about for you. You had some amazing rides booked. I said in the intro that I was hoping to put your episode out directly after you won the Melbourne Cup. That was my plan at the <laughs> stage. Um, I was devastated for you, but obviously nowhere near what you were going through. How did you cope with the fact that your grand finals had been taken away? Yeah, like that was one component of it. Look, um, life goes on and there'll be more years of racing, but when you cop that straight away and know the rides that have just disappeared, um, I just felt like I let all the trainers down that have booked me, um, let myself down, the owners. Um, and like what I'm saying, I, I obviously was going to miss out on a lot, but I just felt like I was letting a lot of people down, my family that, have supported me every race meeting and I think the first weekend um, that I had to get off my rides, my horse won in group one. So that was the start of the isolation week for me and um, I didn't watch it but obviously straight away, ding, ding, your phone blows up and people saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry and then straight away I knew, yep, great, this is how the spring carnival was going to go for me and, and it did every everything pretty much won in the end or, or won at least a good race and um, but like I said, being a jockey, you can be a, a jockey for another 10 or so years. So I've got plenty more time to come back. But at that stage, I thought I'm, I'm done. I'm over, you know, trainers, owners won't put me back on again after this. Um, I just, yeah, I just thought the worst. It, it wasn't very positive for a few weeks. I was thinking about this and I guess this is going to be the most difficult question. When we get to the full episode, um, we discussed social media and we discussed how people have, abused you. There's no better term for it, no more appropriate term when you haven't won a race and they've had money on there and, and you'd shut down social media. I went back and listened to it yesterday. And we talked about you being on the front page of the paper when you broke the record and all these people were looking up to you. So what is it like when you're locked in a room by yourself and your world's caving in and you are on the front page of the paper with your mates? And as I said in the intro, at that stage, the pylon was extraordinary. What's it like being public enemy number one when you're used to being treated well and respected and loved? 
Well, when I spoke to you last time, um, I thought I had copped abuse in my life and it was just nowhere near what um, what we got. It, To be honest, I did a good job of not reading a lot, um, but I got a lot of stuff sent to me. And I think I... I think I grew up as a person in about five minutes. I just had to either choose I'm going to let this get to me or I don't. Um, but the worst thing was what my parents and my family was getting sent to them and getting told about me. It was, I, I think, a few phone calls to mum was just tears. There was nothing else coming out. Um, but, like, you know, I'm not, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I made a mistake. But it, I think I just felt sick to sick for my family really um, and you know the media they build you up um, so much for the success you have but then they're just straight there to, to bring you back down and I think that's why I've been pretty quiet since I've come back I just I just don't like talking about myself much anymore I, I didn't like it at the start but now it's just you, you know what people um, are capable of and what they say about you and I've just been pretty reserved since then because reading those things, they, they do stay with you for a long time. I said in the intro to this, and I can say this, you don't need to say this, that it was such a time of anger and frustration and devastation that we couldn't see our friends and our family and we couldn't send our kids to school and people were angry. And I, this is my opinion. I don't want you to comment on this. You made, in my eyes, a small mistake. You broke a COVID rule, which a lot of people were doing, but you copped the harshest penalty, both being taken away from your job and the abuse you copped more than anyone I saw in Victoria in that two-year time. Now, I don't need you to comment on that. That That's how I saw it and that's how I felt about it. Probably I'm biased yeah. because we'd had a chat and I thought, wow, this is a wonderful young lady who's made one small mistake. What was the hardest thing you went through in that period? Look, it was just hard knowing that I probably could have had one of the biggest spring carnivals of my life because everything just set up so perfectly for it. But then again, I think that's on par with thinking that I've let my family down because they've been the biggest support of my life and I just felt like I wasn't this, you know, their, their perfect little princess anymore, if that makes sense. I just, I, I built a reputation because to me, for some reason, it was so important just to be perfect in everyone's eyes. And after that, I just felt like, you know, I've, I've let everyone down. I'm no longer that person anymore. And that was really hard to, to get past because I've always not taken abuse and, and all that lightly. I've always wanted to be someone everyone liked and um, after that I knew I knew that was sort of no longer for me, um, which sounds silly but that just that just affected me a lot. But do you, uh, <laughs> do you understand in your heart of hearts that everybody makes mistakes? Everybody makes mistakes. None of us are perfect but you can still be held tremendously highly in the public sphere and all those people that look up to you and all those young girls that look up to you, they can still look up to Jamie Carr with stars in their eyes, no matter that you made a mistake? Do you know what? I didn't think that for a long time, um, but being able to get back to racing not as long, um, not that long after, you know, for three months and I was back riding, um, now I realise, 
you know, you, you let your writing do the talking. You let, um, you know, if, if people are not going to like you, they're not going to like you. But there's plenty of people out there that do support you still and do look up to you. And I think coming back to, to writing has just has really helped me, really helped me. I'm glad to hear that. We'll get back to jumping back on a horse and being back in front of crowds and meeting people. But I guess we've spoke about the emotions and the feelings. What have been your learnings? I'll be interested in your answer from this. What have your learnings been about fame, the way people treat people, etc.? Well, firstly, I definitely don't take anything for granted um, anymore. It's not that I, I took it for granted, but you just think it's never going to end. Um, and look, I probably was a bit selfish in the way that people were going through such a hard time and um, I made a mistake and I've had to learn from it. But um, I've also learned that I can't keep everybody happy. Um, I, I can't just base my life around um, making sure everyone likes me. And I've I've got a very tough skin for that. Um, I've I think I just go out there and ride the horse now. If I don't keep someone happy, it's just you've got to live with it. You've got to move on. Um, and I, th- I thought I matured a lot the last few years being a jockey, but this is something else. It just makes you grow up and appreciate life, appreciate the people around you. My circle is a lot smaller now. Um, you can't you can't try and be friends with everyone. You can't try and like uh, make everyone like you. Um, and I think that's just lifted a weight off of my shoulders. It's It's been a tough thing that's happened, but it's also been probably one of the better things that have happened in my life. I've, like I said, I, my, my circle is so much smaller and it's just the people that I trust and, and um, really love around me. Did you feel supported by your industry? Do you know what? Every trainer that I got a message off of was so supportive. It, it was re- it really shocked me because you you let people that you don't know get to you and judge you. And I've got, you know, I've still got the messages off of the trainers now. They were just amazing. They really supported me. Um, my manager, um, Lockie, my rides manager, he, we just sat on the phone crying for a few days. But I just, I just needed him there, and he was so supportive. Um, my friends, my family, um, James, he was always there just to, just, just to help, um, and just, just, just tell me that I will get through this. Um, and we did, which was at the time I didn't feel like I would, um, but yeah, I've, I realised I do have a lot of good people around me. I think, <laughs> for whatever reason, it for all of us. It's really hard, Jamie, to admit we made a mistake. The first thing I heard you say was you made a mistake. So you took responsibility for your actions, which we could all learn from, I reckon, because it's pretty easy not to at times. I think the fact that you took responsibility and admitted your mistake immediately, surely that's the way forward for us all when we stuff things up from evidence from your situation, as bad as it got, at least nobody said, well, Jamie Carr, she hasn't understood what she's done or she hasn't accepted responsibility. I don't think you could ever be accused of that. You're accused of a lot of things, but not that. Yeah, well, it's hard not to admit that. You know, you made a mistake. It's on, it's, um, it, it was it was obvious I've, I've broken the rules and I never contested that, never once. Um, I accepted that straight away. 
and yeah. Coming back to racing, how is it to walk back in front of your peers and the trainers and the stewards and the crowds and the people that looked up to you? How did you feel that first day? Uh, I was sick to my stomach the first day. Um, oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Jane. <laughs> well, it was it was hard because obviously everyone wanted to interview us and talk to talk to me on my first day back, but I just wanted to just get back to riding. I was sick of talking about it, sick of hearing about it. Um, and then I had media at the front gate that morning and I remember they pretty much chased me into the rooms and... I just uh, felt absolutely sick. I think I ran second on my first horse. It was a dollar sixty favorite, and then I just thought to myself, "This is going to be really tough." Um, not not just riding a winner coming back, but just facing up to everybody. Um, but then I had an amazing day at Pakenham that Saturday, and I won the Pakenham Cup. And I, I think it was pretty well highlighted. I I never salute or anything, but I just couldn't help it. I just the emotion. After that win, it was. It felt like I just won the Melbourne Cup. I was just, just relieved. Outside, but Smoke and Romans, 200 metres to go, is two legs in front of Good Idea Mankind team captain. Smoke and Romans with 50 metres to go, clear for Jamie Cars. He's back in grand style. Smoke and Romans won the Pakenham Cup from Good Idea team captain third. Then Mankind. And then after that, everyone just sort of left me alone and. The weeks following that, I was—I just felt like I nothing has changed, and I was back to doing what I loved. So now, when people come up to you with stars in their eyes, and I mentioned at the start how cool it is that little girls look up to you, are you back on board with that? It's not that I ever took that for granted or ignored them or anything like that, but now I just, you know give extra whenever I can to them because they're just, I had a girl come up to me at the races the other day and she said, oh, you know how you told me for Christmas that um, dad should buy me a pony? He bought me a pony (laughs) and she was so excited to tell me and that just made my heart melt. I was just, you know, like these girls, they're still there. They still look up to me and it just makes me really want to be the best person I can be for them. Um, If not, if not just to be a good role model, but just to go out of my way and make sure I, I do speak to them and um, do ask about their ponies or about their day. And that that was really special the other day, actually. It was probably more special than um, before when people have said that to me. Brilliant. So what's next for Jay Carr now? What are you looking forward to? This is behind you. It'll be a tiny footnote somewhere back in history when you go on to continue doing what you love. What excites you now? I'm just trying my best to ride another Group 1 winner. <laughs> um, but it's just nice being back and not having, not putting myself under pressure. Um, I, I obviously can't wait for Spring Carnival again. Um, and I'm just enjoying riding winners. I don't have any big goals at the moment. Um, I'd love to win the All-Star Mile in a few weeks, but <laughs> I, I really... I really just, I'm just enjoying, I'm enjoying it. I'm in a happy place um, and I just want to be the best I can be. Great answer. Final one for you. Um, You haven't spoken about this publicly before. What's it like to talk about? Is it a negative? Is it a positive? We hear and 
I've probably learnt this recently that it's best to speak about things eventually to people to get things off your chest. Is it is it a good or is it a bad or you just don't ever want to think about it again? Well, Howie, I'm not sucking up to you, but you're very easy to talk to, so Thank I'm you. enjoying it. <laughs> and like we said before, we need to speak about it, but I've just I haven't really been in the right place to speak about it um, until recently, and it's it's good. I've got it off my chest. Hopefully, people can understand my side of the story and what I was going through. I know um, a lot of people were angry about it and I understand that too, but it'd just be nice if they did see where I was coming from. I'm sure they will. We've done with this. So now we can get into the full episode, which was recorded last July. It's lovely to see you again. Stay safe on your horses. May you ride many winners. And thanks for trusting the show to have a chat and being honest and open. And don't forget, J Carr, everybody makes mistakes. Every single one of us makes mistakes. You're a star. Thank you. And hopefully we can speak after uh, the Melbourne Cup when I win it this year. Don't you forget <laughs> that. When you become bigger than big, do not forget that, J Carr. I'll make sure I spare a few minutes for you. <laughs> Alrighty, enough with the COVID stuff. Let's move on. Let's get to Jamie's real story. But just before we do that, next up on the Howie Games... A guest I've been hoping to have on the show for a couple of years, if not more. The Bozza, Mark Bosnich. Now, Bozza <laughs> is one of Australia's greatest ever footballers. He has lived a life and a half. One of the first Aussies to really hit the big time in the Premier League, noticed with it Aston Villa and Manchester United. Mark is full of stories that will make you shake your head, that will make you feel good about life, that maybe even will make you laugh. But I am tipping... No matter what you are laughing about or how you are laughing, you will not be able to match the laugh <laughs> of my man Bozza. <laughs> I wanted to do a standing committee about that one. <laughs> I don't see you or Robbie on it. <laughs> unders, way unders. <laughs> I do not care at all. If you have never watched a game of football or soccer, if you like, in your life, please, please set some time aside to listen to Bozza next up on the show. All righty, let's get on with the show. Here's Jamie Carr's story. How's this going to go? I remember having Elise Perry on the show once and I had to say to her at the start, Elise, you are so modest, you're going to find it difficult to talk about yourself. And... You strike me as a similar person that you, you reported to your, your manager, a friend of both of ours, Hendo, James Henderson, that you didn't know what we were going to talk about. Well, that's my number one thing I hate talking about is myself. And <laughs> at the moment, everyone wants to talk about me and I'm, I'm struggling with it. But um, no, we'll see how we go. We will. Just tell the people, we tried to do this a couple of times through nobody's fault and then we were going to do it yesterday. And uh, you contacted me directly rather than going through Hendo. Why did you do that? Um, because I knew he would blow up at me because he knows how useless and lazy I am. So I went straight into his messages and I found right at the bottom was your number. I went, beauty, I don't even have to ask for your number. <laughs> I just texted you. <laughs> so it, it struck me that you're scared of your own manager and then he texted me last night at 7.30 and he's like, Howie, how'd you go with Jamie? And it put me in an awkward position because I didn't <laughs> want to tell him that we hadn't done it yet. I was, yeah, he texted me too. I just ignored him. You've got to just ignore him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you. You mentioned right off the top something I wanted to ask you about that, and we'll get to the 100 um, Metropolitan wins and the, and the first jockey to do it uh, in the Victorian uh, landscape shortly, but the 
amount of people that have been talking about you on the spotlight that has been on you in the last probably six to 12 months has been incredible. How, how are you dealing with that yourself? Yeah, I think I'm dealing with it pretty well um, up until probably the last few weeks when I was um, building up to the 100. And uh, I'm not one that lets um, pressure get to me and, and social media and people. But for some reason that day at Sandown when I'm, uh, everyone was sort of expecting me to ride the 100 really got to me in the end. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm one that doesn't read social media, but it's quite hard when it was just absolutely everywhere. It was always all over racing.com and um, a few things that I read um, sort of sort of hit me a bit harder than I thought they would. So um, I was very relieved to get the, the 100 that Saturday for sure. As I said, we'll get to that. Uh, take, take me to that situation and th- things you read or when you said it got to you, w- what does that mean in your world? Because you're a high-profile athlete, you're under pressure constantly. When things get to you, what, what does that mean? Oh, look, well, we go out there to do our best and we, we can't carry them, which is a term that a lot of jockeys use. You know, hmm. you're only as fast as or as good as your horse is. And um, that, that day I had a, oh, three or four short price favourites and I didn't really think they could win um, but they were favourite because I was on them and you see and you read things that people write about you and they almost don't treat you like you're human they they sort of just expect and lots of athletes would, would understand that they just expect that they can say whatever they feel or whatever they want about you and um, I'm not very good at you know ignoring that I, le- I sort of get it gets to me because um, I, I don't like letting people down I um, I really want to do my best um, all the time and you know, it's 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 hard to to be perfect twenty four seven. So, how have you found? We'll get to all the positives of being successful, but h- how have you found the added pressure and expectation of being successful? It, it, you know, there was a time when Damien Oliver was riding a horse; the horse would be favourite, and everybody would be backing the jockey rather than the horse. As you said, you had horses that weren't probably on form favourites, but because you were riding them, all of a sudden they became favourites. How have you dealt with this added pressure of being so successful? Um, look, I'm quite used to that now with the, the favourites um, and the horses being shorter than they should be. But I think you've really got to rely on the people around you. I've got some really great people around me and um, you've got to fall back on them. And, you know, that they normally tell you the things that you need to hear and um, I, I don't have Facebook or um, Twitter really anymore. I sort of I stay off that and just speak to the people that matter and the people that are going to look after you. Most people do the podcast inside. I'm delighted that you're doing it outside. So people are <laughs> going to hear those beautiful birds in the background. That's what it is. Jamie set up outside her magnificent Ponderosa. Now, with this success, I, I was doing some research, Jamie, and I came across online the Jamie Carr song. Are you across the Jamie Carr song? <laughs> I may have heard one before. Um. <laughs> okay, oh, well, I recorded a bit of it. I want to know if you've, oh, heard, God. If you've heard this one. <laughs> Are you ready for this, Jamie? Um, yep, give it to me. Well, Jamie, this has been just an amazing day for you. Cox Blake Day, riding four winners. Oh, it's amazing. It was um, Chrissy. I'm so humbled to be given these opportunities. That's Chris um, Simons. God, that was a good win. But the first thing about riding with Danny, they're all the social media. She's a Ferrari. I have not heard this one. <laughs> I think people have too much time on their hands. Wait for the chorus. There's no getting away, boy. Jamie Carr is There's no getting away, boy. Jamie Carr is 
Like I said, people really have too much time on their hands. Okay. <laughs> I know you won't because you're too modest, but I was looking at it yesterday. It's in my bloody head, that song now. I was out this morning in the surf and I was like, there's no getting away, boy. So, yeah, I'm sorry get, about that. No, don't be. It's very catchy. What is it like when you get to the point, Jamie Carr, when people are singing songs <laughs> you about, songs you, about you, you and you see yourself as just a person doing a job? Uh, people surprise me still. Um, <laughs> just still things, <laughs> seeing those things and seeing, look, there's been a few videos lately when there's little girls that dressed up as me and go to school, um, you know, favourite superhero or favourite athlete. And, you know, they, they send me videos on Facebook saying that, you know, they look up to me and that's amazing. Like, I'm, I'm still young myself and to have little girls um, calling me a role model and I think that really, um, really hits me like I'm, really privileged to, um, you know, have someone that looks up uh, looks up to me and, um, yeah, it still surprises me to this day though. Privilege, I think, is a wonderful description of it. What do you see as your role as a role model? Do you, it sounds like it's something that you take quite seriously. Yeah, it is. Um, look, it, it sort of makes you grow up a lot quicker. Um, you know, you've, you've got people looking up to you now. You've, you've, you're in the spotlight 24-7. You know, you can't be... Um, you know, you can't be making too many mistakes. You've you've got you know little little girls' eyes on you all the time. So look, I I just try and do my best when I'm out there, and um, you know, just try try and not let the pressure get to you, and just um, go and do your own thing and, and, and try and ride some winners. You mentioned little girls looking up to you. We're guilty on this show about not having enough female athletes on, and I'm, I'm trying to get more and more female athletes on as we go along. There's been an explosion in women's sport. In this country, I guess, in the last 15 years, I think it would be fair to say, Jamie, and around the world, which is fantastic because it brings so much diversity to it. How do you – it's not a political question or answer, but how do you see the progression of female sport and your ability to influence? Well, especially um, as a jockey, there's there's no advantages given to male or females. You know, we're very equal um, when we're out there and – I think because there's so many girls that love equestrian and love um, riding horses, you know, they, they're getting more into the sport and they are naturally a lot lighter than men too. So it makes our job a lot easier. Um, and I think there's so many good apprentices coming through the ranks now that are females. So I think in the next sort of two, three years, they'll, they'll see a lot more of them riding on the big days in spring carnival. And like last year, I was the only girl in the rooms probably throughout the whole um, spring carnival, which was a bit, um, oh, it, it was a bit, you know, you're in there by yourself all day you're, you're yeah. counting the bricks on the wall. So it's um, it's going to be good. I think the next few years, really going to see some more female um, jockeys come through the ranks. And just just like the other day when I was on the front page with Ash Barty, that was unbelievable. Like it is, they're recognising all these um, females for what they're doing for their sport and um, it's still very surreal. Well, you're talking about the paper that was uh, in Victoria in the Herald Sun, Ash had won Wimbledon, you'd written your... Uh, 100th winner and when you say you're staying off social media etc I get that and that's a constant refrain from a lot of athletes but you can't avoid the front page of the paper <laughs> well, um, <No. laughs> did someone text you that it was on there did you go to the news agent uh, and there's your smiling face I think that morning it was all over my phone it was uh yeah at the at the local service station and it's um it's very strange like it's still very strange to me that it's um that that sort of publicity is obviously good publicity so uh, it's good for the sport and it's good for myself as well. 
tell me where this journey began. Firstly, tell me about your, your mum and dad uh, from, from what I was reading, that they are Winter Olympians, which I found extremely cool. Yeah, they are. Um, they both represented Australia uh, for ice skating and um, they're really, really amazing people. They're, they're very healthy and fit and um, they played a, a big part in my life um, getting me to become a jockey. They were... Mum was there every morning taking me to work when I was 14, um, early mornings, 3.30 in the morning, and um, they're just amazing people and they, they come over regularly and, and support me over here and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a very lucky girl, that's for sure. Do you know which games they competed at? Uh, I think Dad won gold at Lillehammer, maybe 93 or 92. Um, oh. his, his team won gold and uh, I think Mum might have won a bronze or something on her team, but... Um, they would have competed at three Olympics. Don't quote me, but I, I'm really bad at this. But um, no, that they've Dad's definitely won a gold medal. Do you know what he won a gold medal in? I didn't know it was at that level. Uh, I think it was a relay, ice skating, speed skating. Yeah, right. <laughs> not quite sure. I should know more, but um, yeah, he, he's he's amazing. He's he was um, actually on Stephen Bradbury's team, and he he taught him how to ice skate. So. Right. It's going back a long way now. Yeah, they're still quite close, and um, I think we, we went out to dinner a while ago with them. So, what, uh, what's your dad's cool. name? John Carr. So you have does, to does, Google does, it. I, I will, <laughs> and, and I'll get a bit more information about him. Does he have massive quads on him, John Carr? Because I, I've been to a couple of Winter Olympics. <laughs> Those speed skaters, they got big bums and legs. Yeah, he does, and I'm cursed with that too. I've got quite <laughs> big legs. But Dad was actually a um, he competed. Uh, in the velodrome racing, so he, he did a lot of bike riding as well, so he's got massive legs. <laughs> right. And obviously you said they were so supportive of you. What did you – how do you view the the parents' involvement in a child's sport, Jamie? We're lucky a lot of kids listen to this with, with their yeah. parents, which, which we're privileged to have that on this show. It's a fine line, I guess, between support and pushing. 100%. How have you seen that develop in your life? Uh, well, look, it started from just the Pony Club days early on, um, competing just in local show jumping competitions. And I'd have my parents there and they'd be so supportive. Like, I'd go and mess up and, you know, they'll get a few rails down. I'll come back and mum and dad would be like, oh, that was so great. You did so well. And then you get those parents that are screaming at their kids because they didn't win a blue ribbon or, you know, mm. they're, they're just bringing them down all the time because obviously they want them to succeed. But mum and dad were always there and supported me, but they would never, ever... Um, criticise me or, you know, even when it went to racing, um, I'd sit three wide and, you know, that's not an ideal spot to be in a race um, and my horse would run second and it probably should have won, but I, I couldn't give it any um, any more hope from that gate, drew, drew a wide gate, etc. Um, and mum and dad would just be there and be clapping and um, just be supportive of me and, and that's amazing. Like, you get those parents that do want their kids to succeed, but they just push them too far. Mum and Dad never did that. They were always just uh, unbelievable to me. You mentioned in the player profile, Billy, uh, uh, little pony <laughs> my, you had. Was, yes. that, was, that your, was that your first horse? Um, it was one of my first horses. I had a few little Shetland ponies, but Mum and Dad gave this horse to me um, from the Coffin Bay Brumby sales, huh. actually, and huh. I got to break him, uh, break him in, and um, that was another thing. Mum and Dad used to not spoil me and overdo it, but they used to... You know, that we used to buy a lot of cheaper ponies, but I'd, I'd always have um, animals and I'd always be outside and, and you know, I was a very very lucky childhood. I'd have horses and animals all around me and it was, it was the best upbringing. What's your first memory of being on a horse? 
my first memory, oh, it's hard to separate them from photos, but I, yeah, I do remember mum used to lead me to school on my pony and there'd be everybody in their prams and I used to ride a horse called Disco. It was a little Shetland pony. Um, and I'm pretty sure I do remember this day because she was talking to someone else and what happens, the horse shakes sometimes. Just they, yep. they wriggle and next minute I went splat, fell off. Mum walked off without me, didn't realise I wasn't on the pony and <laughs> yeah, I was bawling my eyes out. But, um, <laughs> but no, I, I had a, a very good, very good childhood. So what is it or what was it about horses that grabbed you as a little girl, Jamie? Uh, look, it was strange because mum and dad weren't um, horsey when they grew up. They, they had a few horses when I was born, but nothing crazy. And uh, they never pushed me towards them, but I just, you know, I loved them. I'm not sure why, but mum would find me um, out there sleeping next to all the, the Shetland ponies and I'd just be hanging around them all day. And nowadays, though, I just, I love how different and versatile they are. There's, they got so many different personalities and they're so trustworthy. Um, I do a lot of show jumping on my off-the-track horses and they, they just trust you. Like, they just, you can ask them to do anything and they just give you their all and I think that's what I really love about horses. And I wasn't aware that um, early on that it wasn't a jockey was being set out for you. You wanted to be an equestrian rider. I presume you're watching it at the Olympics now. I was watching the dressage the other day and the the rest of it's still to come. That was was what you were up to. Yeah, I never had any interest in being a jockey. I was never um, brought up in the racing industry and it was only by chance that I... um, went to a racing stable just to pay for, um, you know, rugs and new saddles and, and um, things for my pony. So that was never um, the career I wanted to do. I I wanted to um, go mustering and work on a cattle station um, or I actually went overseas when I was 18, like I was saying, um, and I worked for a show jumping stable over there. So it was never being a jockey. That was never what I wanted to do. It was just by chance in the end. And is it something you can come back come back to and compete at a high level? I presume you're a reasonably competitive person, but once you've stopped riding horses in races for a living, can you come back to something like that? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I, I still compete just at lower level show jumping with my horses, but I'd love to sort of get back into it one day when I finish racing and um, a little uh, dream of mine, I wanted to travel around Australia with a team of horses when I retire and just go to all the big um, agricultural shows and they have big show jumping competitions at all of them. So that's something I'd love to do when I finish racing. Well, Andrew Hoy, he's at his eighth Olympics, isn't he? So that's spanned over from his first one. It's a 28-year period. So, you know, you no. never know. You never know <laughs> where you could end up. Well, there was that 66-year-old um, yes. woman doing dressage the other day. She was amazing. Yeah. Like, you know, it, it's it's no age limit on that. So maybe maybe one day that could be the, the goal. Which is really, really cool about the sport. So you mentioned you went to buy some rugs, et cetera, and that sort of opened the door. Take me to that day. What happened? Where were you? Um, I had a really good friend. Um, she was actually on Big Brother the other day. Her name's um, Melissa McGorman. She she was on what? Big Brother? Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, that, that sheep lady. The, everyone thought oh, of the, yeah, okay. the crazy sheep lady. Anyway, she was, um, she was living <laughs> with us at the time and she... Um, we used to do mounted games and show jumping and stuff together and she took me down to the stable where she was working and um, that happened to be my boss, John McMillan, that I was apprenticed to. So I, um, yeah, I just worked there for a week and then come home and said, Mum, I want to be a jockey. And she had a half a meltdown, but then then they were supportive. So it was literally just a, a very quick decision of mine and um, I just, yeah, I fell in love with the thoroughbreds. I, I'd never actually owned one or ridden many before I, um, I rode a racehorse, but they're amazing animals. So how old were you when you left school? Uh, 14. 
So, so that's a that's a that's a tough one for <laughs> mum and dad to handle. It was, I yeah, it was. But look, mum and dad, they're um, look, they're very successful people because they work really hard, and um, I don't think they finished school, and it was not a priority for them. Obviously, they would love me to stay in school, but um, I had a lot of family friends telling me and telling mum and dad that I was um, doing something wrong, like it was just silly leaving school and. But they, they just um, trusted that it's what I wanted to do and they supported me and uh, it turned out being probably the best thing that happened to me. But I was very lucky that they let me leave school. So when you're, you're a young girl, and I'm not sure how the apprenticeship system works and you can explain it to me, but when you get on a thoroughbred for the first time, what is it like when you get on one of those? I've had the pleasure of working on a, a various horse racing events over the years and being in the mounting yard and just I didn't realise the size or the power of those horses, Jamie. It is amazing, yeah. So it's um, it's a little bit daunting because they are a lot bigger than um, the ponies that I used to have. But um, my first gallop, I think I was working there for a month and then we went to um, the Gawler Racetrack and it's like nothing you've experienced. It's, it's, it? I think they, they go about 60k an hour, but when you're on them, it just feels like, oh, it feels like you're going so fast. And um, it was an amazing feeling um, and... It, it, instantly get hooked it's it's adrenaline rush it's um it's all of those things so when do you first what, what's your first race you ever rode in uh, i was 16 um so my apprenticeship lasted two years they normally last about four years but i was fortunate enough to um ride um outride my claim which means you ride a certain amount of winners yeah um but yeah i had my first race ride when i was 16 um i think it took me about a month to ride my first winner and then yeah it all, all went from there and i think at the end of that year, I moved to Melbourne on loan. Um, so it was um, pretty flat out first year for me. Who, who, which, what was the first winner? Where was it? What was the horse? And take me through it. Uh, it was a horse called Magic Tigress. Um, I had a double on that day. Uh, the next horse was a horse called Arthurian Legend, which mum and dad actually owned. So that was a, ah. um, a really special day. Um, it was the Clare Easter races and not sure if you've ever experienced um, than before, but they are a massive event. Everyone from that side of town goes and um, the, the crowd was massive. And I think um, the owners of Magic Tigress, they actually backed the horse in from $13 to $2.80 favourites. So back then I, um, I was feeling the pressure and um, thank God it won and everyone was happy. <laughs> and what is that moment like for you? And we'll get to the hard work that's required, which I really want to talk to you about it. But what is it like when you are first past the post? you sort of get goosebumps it's like a it's like a relief because you know you it's a lot of pressure to ride your first winner and I had I didn't have that many starts I think I had about 13 but um you're always waiting for that to get out of the way and um it was a big relief I, I um I think I had goosebumps all over me and I thought yeah this is this is what I want to do this is um there's there's no feeling like it really you must have progressed pretty quickly um your first season 2012-13 in South Australia, you won the Adelaide Jockey Premiership first up. So is it a learned skill? Is it a natural skill? Like how do you how do you become a gun jockey? Do you know what? People ask that question a lot and I think you obviously have to have some um, skill and ability, but I think you just have to be in the right place at the right time for some of these things. And I um, was fortunate enough. John McMillan, my boss, he had a lot of horses on the up um, winning maidens and he put me on every single one of his horses and I had that much support from him. And then other people saw that and 
I got on this role and Tony McAvoy put me on a lot, which is a, um, he was a, a really big trainer in Adelaide and in Melbourne as well. Um, but I was very lucky. Like not many, not many jockeys get that much support when they start. And John backed me and he told all his owners that I was the only jockey riding his horses. And that's, that's a massive thing that that's sort of unheard of. That's the end of Jamie Carr part A. See you on the home straight for part B. Listener.